0: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.
1: At Sturia University, we see you striving to work harder and go further. That's why we provide you with the tools you need to get there, like offering a brand-new laptop when you enroll in a bachelor's program. So you can do your coursework anytime, anywhere, and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Eligibility rules, restrictions, and exclusions apply. Connect with us for details. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.
2: Welcome, everybody, to the Across the Sky Podcast, Elite Enterprises National weather podcast i'm meteorologist joe Martucci, based at the jersey shore here summer of course in full swing although fall is creeping around the corner but we're talking about wave safety we have Bruckner chase uh he is a coastal and ocean safety expert um i know him personally he is fantastic uh really uh loves his craft. But let me ask you guys, uh, Sean and Matt, have you guys been to the beach this year?
3: Uh, You know, I have not been to the beach this year. Uh, I think I've told y'all I'm saving my pennies and going to Italy in September. So I have not done the beach this year. But nonetheless, I do love the beach. I love the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And I really liked what Bruckner had to say about the differences between some of the, the hazards on the East Coast versus the West Coast, not having been really I uh, spent a lot of time at the West Coast beaches. It, it's nice to see this this broader, broader scope that he was able to to, to bring us in on.
4: And I have not made a beach trip either uh, this summer. Of course, I am in Chicago. Now, we do have beaches in Chicago. They're just lake beaches. And if you've never been on the Great Lakes, uh, you've never been to Chicago, when you are staying on Lake Michigan, you think you're at the ocean. Somebody just dropped you down. They'd be like, I'm at the ocean, right? Uh, no, the lake is just that big. <laughs> it is, the ocean. You get wave action on it. Uh, so I have been to a Chicago lake beach, but not an ocean beach this summer. I've always been a little bit nervous. i got to be honest about going to the beach. And I feel like oftentimes I think, oh, well, if I just want to swim, I'm just going to get in a pool because there is the uncertainty about the ocean. Of course, there's the everything that gets overblown about sharks, and I'm not worried about that. But there is the unknown about, you know, what is in the water? Are there rip currents out there? What are other things you know this is this is the wild. You're not in a contained controlled situation. You're exposed to the elements and everything that's out in the ocean. So talking about beach safety and the hazards at the beach, again, most of the time it's gonna be fine, but it is always in the back of your mind, it's like uh, it's like one more thing to be concerned about so i think that's why it was just great to bring him on and kind of talk about all the different things you do need to keep him about. you can definitely have a great time at the beach but things to keep in mind to make sure you stay safe
2: absolutely without further ado we'll jump into it let's talk to bruckner chase about ocean and water safety And now we welcome on Bruckner Chase. He is an ocean and coastal safety expert who works with lifeguards, government agencies, and organizations from all across the globe. He is the host of NOAA's WaveSafe video series. He's been featured on the Weather Channel many a times. That's how we first uh, got to knowing each other a little bit here. He's also an ocean adventure athlete who has, wait for this, swam 25 miles across Monterey Bay, across Lake Tahoe for 22 miles. And maybe the most impressive part has the world record for swimming without a wetsuit in Alaska. Bruckner is also a chief in an American Samoa village. He's from Memphis, Tennessee, and lives in my home state, the Great Garden State of New Jersey. Bruckner, thanks for being on the Across the Sky podcast. We appreciate it.
5: It is, it is great to be here. And I would suggest uh, taking a boat across Monterey Bay is probably uh far easier if you check the weather first than swimming across it
2: i i i could imagine um and and i do want to get into some of those uh adventures that, that you have taken uh but i just want to say you know i'm i'm glad uh just personally what we've done over the past couple of weeks with uh, you being so close being along the jersey shore and promoting wave safety here my first question for you is you know i know you're not a meteorologist but what interest do you have in weather and how did that start
5: You know, I've got a lot of interest in whether I've gotten really involved with the American Meteorological Society as well. I've spoken at their last two conferences for broadcasters and communicators. And I think one of the things when I began originally my career with NOAA started working with National Marine Sanctuaries, which oversees the country's marine protected areas. When over the last several years, I've been working with National Weather Service on coastal safety. And the near shore environment, as all of you know, is so impacted by weather, whether it's wind bringing currents and waves and small crafted advisories, If you're going to be in, on, or near the water or on the shore, the weather is really going to impact your experience there. It's going to make it a great day. It's going to make it a safe day, or it can make it a dangerous day. And you need to be aware of how those changing conditions are going to impact where you are and what you're planning on doing.
2: So tell us about the the Wave Safe series that that you've been doing. If you're listening through one of our uh, newsroom websites, you can <laughs> see Bruckner's videos on there. We have them up. But uh, what is Wave Safe? Um, and tell you about the process of making it because you are talking about the whole country with this, but you're making it a little regionalized, which I think is uh, makes it different here.
5: When I came in with the National Weather Service, you know, we had released the Rip Current Survival Guide, which focused on one specific beach hazard, which was rip currents. And we recognize, though, that rip currents were not uh, prevalent in all of the shorelines around the U.S. and U.S. territories. And we also realized that there are a lot of other hazards that impacted people at the shore, not necessarily fatal impacts, but non-fatal, life-changing impacts as well. So, National Weather Service and I, we got together and said we need to kind of expand the narrative about what people need to look for on the shore. So. WaveSafe was meant to take kind of a social science approach added to the oceanographic meteorological approach of what is the science of the shore. And we wanted to take a demographic and geographic specific look at hazards. So I was charged with writing the series and then became the host of the actual video content and had the opportunity to speak to weather forecasting offices within National Weather Service all over the country. We knew we wanted to target five main areas, the East Coast, the Pacific Northwest, Southern California, Hawaii, and then American Samoa. And we wanted to look at the hazards that those forecasting meteorologists needed to communicate to that group specifically in say the Pacific Northwest. So here we'll talk a lot about hurricanes and how they impact the coastal environment in the pacific northwest you had log rolls you had sneaker waves you had cold water immersion you had pocket beaches that were you know could become more dangerous as 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 tides change significantly so the wave safe series was we spent two or three years really looking at what are the hazards in specific areas how do we communicate those not just so that people would watch the videos but so how could we convey actions and awareness that would actually help protect individuals and communities because it wasn't just about impressions it was about changing behavior to have a positive impact on fatal and non-fatal incidences at the shore yeah and rugger i think that's real interesting how you're really diving in and
4: looking at differences and uh really <laughs> across the planet but just looking at the us as well because i think it's oftentimes it does get oversimplified, and you just talk about beach safety in general but there actually are regional differences and i and i'm curious about that because you talked about the threat of rip currents. Are there certain areas that are more prone to rip currents and where we see more rip currents in other locations?
5: Yes. As, as you guys know, rip currents are, are very determined, and, and now National Weather Service has a, a forecasting model so they can predict where it's more likely or higher risk for rip currents. And a rip current is a very localized event, 25, 50 meters wide, uh, and really depends upon both wave action, tidal action, and bathymetry of what's going on underneath there. And so when you've got sand beaches like you have along much of the East Coast or around the the panhandle of Florida or the Gulf Coast, they're going to be more uh, prevalent to have rip currents kind of forming because of the way that bottom can be shaped. But when you've got really steep drop-offs close to shore, like you may have in the Pacific Northwest, or you've got a rigid uh, reef bottom that doesn't contour the way our sands do, Rip currents may not be as much of a risk. And we often look at uh, Surf Life Saving Australia, which is kind of the gold standard around the country for not just protecting the beaches, but really gathering information about beach going communities and putting that towards actionable stuff that their surf life saving clubs can implement to keep people safe. And what their research found and what they push out in their annual reports is. Up to 50% of most incidents are not rip currents. It's a lot of the other hazards that happen along the coastline. And I think that in just talking about rip currents or leading people to believe that rip currents are the only dangerous currents, we miss the opportunity to protect people, say, in the Pacific Northwest, where it might be something very different.
3: Yeah, to that point, we hear about rip currents all the time here, and, and I have my eastern bias as well with that. Uh, But what are some of the other, you know, once you go after rip currents, what are some of those other those other risk factors? And obviously, they're going to be greater in some locations than others. But what are two or three of these things that do come to mind right after the rip currents?
5: Well, I'll tell you, one of the biggest risk factors, because in looking at risk, you need to look at both the people involved and then the physical element that you're discussing. And a risk factor, and one of the things that we're trying to address in this next phase of work with National Weather Service is people that aren't from the shore misinterpreting their swimming ability with the conditions in front of them. Too often, and you see this in the early drownings in Panama City, Florida, where you've got people coming from from inland, say Memphis, Tennessee, where I used to come from, coming down to the shore not understanding that even though they know how to swim in a backyard pool or country club pool, the conditions near shore could be completely different. And often the risk factor that's really high is how do we teach people to understand what a two or three foot wave really means for them or perhaps their seven or eight year old child. And I think as far as just hazards, which can be dangerous is, breaking waves and understanding that even a two to three foot wave packs a really strong punch if you're not prepared for it and often what can happen is if you look at some of the uh, non-fatal and fatal drownings combinations of wind direction and wind strength wave direction and wave size knocking people over putting them in a the condition in a nearshore environment that's not what they expect deeper than they expect and then realizing that, according to Surf Life Saving Australia, 48% of people that visited the beach said they could not swim at least 50 meters in the ocean without touching the bottom. So if we talk about surviving a rip current, if you get pulled out, if you take numbers like that, where 50% of the people cannot even swim 50 meters in the ocean, then it doesn't take much as far as wave and wind action to really make even swimming out of a rip, really dangerous and difficult. So I think that really kind of turbulent, unpredictable conditions that occur near shore, often because of weather, become as deadly or more so than rip current because they can lead to catastrophic events forming from there.
2: So, Bruckner, so with all of this, you know, we've said it before, you, know, you want to make this a positive experience when you're talking about wave safety. It's not to scare mm-hmm. people, it's to empower people. So in these videos, right, you right, it right, that mindset, instead of saying, "Hey, like, don't do this," you know, say it in a way that empowers you to, you know, tackle the ocean uh, appropriately. Keep in mind, I
5: started working with Noah, talking about our marine sanctuaries, these amazing, beautiful places that are really kind of uh, the place where we kind of protect our wildlife and our our shore environments, our coastal environments, our coral, our marine heritage. And at every one of the WaveSafe series, we wrap it up because we want people to have a lifetime of positive experiences at the shore. You know, we live at the shore here, and, and that's an important part of both our culture, our community, and even the economy. And I think that we can make any of these dangerous elements, like rips or waves, a positive experience. And we focused on three main things. We wanted people to respect the ocean which really means kind of respect that it's dynamic and it's changing, and it may be stronger than our swimming ability that we came with. The second is situational awareness. Be aware that things are always changing. Tides, currents, weather, wind, lightning, it's always evolving and changing. And often you can keep it positive by recognizing that, hey, it was really glassy and calm this morning. Lunchtime you come back, the winds have switched, now it's a little bit more dangerous. So that positive experience is this afternoon, we need to stay on the beach, or this is the day to go up to the boardwalk. And recognizing those changing conditions can impact how safe things are. And finally, you know, take 10. We want to give people the skill set, and take 10 is focused on preventing second victim drownings and giving people the skills that if they end up in trouble, a loved one is in trouble, or they see someone in trouble, how do we give them the tools so that they can live to be the hero? that they don't become a tragic second victim because again a lifetime of positive experiences at the shore is our number one goal and brother i want to shift gears a little bit but i kind of want
4: to Mm -hmm. it still i think is relevant for people who are not boaters. but i do want to talk about boating a little bit because one of the most common things Mm -hmm. that i see get issued by the national weather service are small craft advisories and often the question i (laughs) get is what exactly does that mean what does it take to get a small craft advisory and what do they mean by small craft so for boaters but i think there are also just a lot of people that will see that on their phone a small craft advisory and they're not boating they just want to go to the beach and swim but like is there is that something i should be concerned
5: about if there's a small craft advisory does that impact swimmers as well absolutely i think it's a really important question and, and something we've we've talked about that you know a weather forecast will kind of tell you what is going to happen across a general area often before we head to the beach we'll chuck for small craft advisories we'll also look at surf reports and surf reports often if you look at somewhere like Surfline, where they drill it down to beach specific or small craft advisories it'll be drilled down to a specific county or area a swimmer or someone going into the water is pretty much a small craft you know it is a a small entity that's in the water and what delineates a small craft advisory or triggers that is really something that probably is is set by National Weather Service, accepted by the weather forecasting offices, and its templates that they follow. And I would encourage everyone to, to look that up to know what triggers that warning for your area. But what it often will mean is turbulent, disorganized conditions near shore driven by wind and swell and a combination of how they interact that make it not you know, hard to navigate, or control if you're in a small boating craft, a motorized boat. But imagine if it's hard to control or dangerous for someone in a motorized watercraft, how much worse that could be if you're on a stand up paddleboard or on a kayak or you're swimming. That impact on you in those situations can be much, much worse. Even if you just look at offshore winds that often would be a, a component in a small craft advisory pushing someone further away from the beach into dangerous situations in which they cannot get themselves out All
2: right. Well, we're going to take a brief break. And on the other side, we're going to have more with Bruckner Chase. You're listening to the across the sky podcast. And we are back with the across the sky podcast. New episodes come out every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts or on your favorite newsrooms website. We are back here with Bruckner Chase. Well, we were talking a lot about wave safety. Uh he is the host of the Wave Safe program with Noah here. Um I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about yourself, uh Bruckner here. So, uh you know, when I was writing your biography, the first thing I had to ask you about was your swim in Alaska. Your record-setting no wetsuit swim. Um, first, why did you want to do that? Um, and then, secondly, <laughs> uh, how do you? How cold was the water uh, when you were swimming? There? So, so the uh,
5: we'll we'll start with the water temperature. The water temperature was fifty-four degrees, okay. um, Which I think at the time was slightly warmer than the air temperature um so you probably got in there was snow on the mountains back behind us (laughs) um i you know i i grew up in memphis tennessee and and got rescued from drowning twice before i was 10 i learned to swim in a country club pool and i i moved to santa cruz california several years ago and i guess i just fell in with the wrong crowd you know they go yeah we're going out to, to swim in monterey bay and i was like well isn't that where all the great white sharks get researched and they go yeah 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 but you know, we're fine with them. It's, it's a symbiotic relationship. And I'm like, what, you give them your firstborn, that's the symbiotic part of it. So I, I started, I had been a swimmer in college and found that swimming in cold water in the ocean was something that for some reason I was really uh, well adjusted to and had done some, some long swims and kind of pushed the envelope a little. I'd been an endurance athlete on land for, for decades and I heard about a eight and a half mile swim around Pennock Island in Alaska and I had never been up there before and, and going up to Alaska to do a swim around an island at the time sounded like a really kind of unique challenge and ended up uh, just fell in love with the place and had the only the best swims I've ever had my wife was on a kayak escorting me around, we had a Orca swim past while we were on the backside of the island and ended up, uh, winning the race, beating, uh, the relays and setting a course record that I think still stands today. Incredible. Uh,
2: uh, wow.
3: incredible. What kind of background precautions, uh, in a situation like that? I mean, I know there's a, you know, You're not probably tied to a kayak or anything like that, but I mean, are there any kind of background safety things in place and and what are they in in a situation like that? When
5: I first started working with National Marine Sanctuaries, I was working with them as an extreme endurance athlete and swimmer that was doing these kind of unique swims across parts of the sanctuaries. Monterey Bay is one of the National Marine Sanctuaries. I did a swim between a couple of islands in American Samoa. I did a swim from the underwater research lab off of Key Largo back to the to the land, the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary. And so, you know, the the event in Alaska was a race, so there was protocol and safety boats throughout the course, and there was you know a handful of people. Not a lot of people apparently line up to go and do swims in Alaska. Uh, go figure. Um, but there are safety protocols on there. I had a kayaker next to me. And then most of these events, even the more remote kind of adventure swims I've done, um, we have a pretty extensive support crew. We've done a lot of our homework. We know the waters. Uh, I've done an extensive amount of training to prepare. Um, and then we, we talk to researchers in weather and wildlife and water to kind of, as best as possible, learn what to expect. So, you know, kind of look at the risks of uh, some of these things no one had done before. And we kind of address each of those points and to get to the point where we feel, you know, this is safe and we can do this. And then it's just up to me and my training and the crew to see if we get all the way across.
3: Real quick, before I turn this one over to Matt, is there, we hear a lot about hypothermia for, for people who are boating, mm-hmm. especially in the spring, the water's still cold. I, I'm imagining there's not like a magic number, but is there a range for people who aren't acclimated the way you are um, to like a water temperature yeah. that's like wow this this is this is legit too cold if I fall into this, I'm gonna uh, you know I could go into shock hypothermia or something like that.
5: Absolutely. In fact, I work with National Weather Service and I would encourage people to go to the Cold Water Safety segment in National Weather Service on on coastal and beach hazards saying we have some standards of, of what to expect. <laughs> but there are examples of warm water hypothermia. even someone who falls off a boat in Florida, into water that's 76 77 degrees they can eventually become hypothermic they can lose function and they can you know die and drown people that aren't acclimated in my estimation once you get water below 70 degrees or so it causes a physiological kind of shock to the system and often in that one minute to two minute window where you're trying to get your breathing under control you've kind of been kind of shocked into kind of a a, brantic respiratory rate people often get into trouble just with that immediate response and then the hypothermia you know they say that you've got a handful of minutes to kind of get your breathing under control and then with most people if you're acclimated you've got maybe 10 to 15 minutes of functional motion control where you could get yourself out of a a dangerous situation Um, many times obviously if you fall through a frozen lake into really cold water that's 32 33 degrees the effect is going to be even faster. Um, But even in 55, 58 degree water in the Pacific Northwest, someone who gets knocked off of a cliff, say by a wave, fall into that water, they don't have a lot of time to get out of that water and self-rescue before they end up becoming a victim. And that's, you know, I spent some time working with the Coast Guard Rescue Soil Program and really what they try to do is if someone can stay calm and afloat, it gives rescuers time to get to them, and and sadly, cold water really cuts down on that, that time that someone can keep themselves above water and safe. And kind of sticking with the time theme,
4: even when we're not talking about water temperatures, there a recommended amount of time. And I think this is especially important when it comes to you know parents and their kids, because they see their kids having a fun time at the beach, playing in the water. You know, everything looks good, but at some point, you don't <laughs> want to interrupt the fun. But is there a time amount that the kids should be in the water before they need to come out and at least take a break? Like, what kind of a, a time window should parents be keeping an eye on? It's like, you know, maybe my kids have been out there a little bit too long, might be getting a little bit too tired, might become more susceptible to the waves, or you know, the, you know, just you know, reaching that point of exhaustion. What is kind of like a time window people should kind of keep in
5: mind when they're in the water before they need to come out and at least take a break for a little while. Really, the question you're asking really kind of draws on some of my training as a, a wilderness first responder and, and just hypothermia itself, whether it's it's water or air, and looking for the early warning sign of that, which is, you know, uncontrolled shivering, loss of motor control, you know, discoloration in lips and fingertips and stuff. So parents watching for those early signs in the hypothermia continuum and getting your kids out of the water and warming them up so that that doesn't you know, doesn't kind of progress, but that's also, you know, the same with surfers. I mean, you can get to the point where you can lose control and maybe not be able to paddle back again. And then, so really kind of intervening, recognizing the early stages of hypothermia, if it's because you're at the shore in the water or just along the shore and the wind and cold temperatures are kind of impacting you, but recognizing those early signs of hypothermia and intervening before it progresses to a dangerous point.
2: Hey, Bruckner, I'm going to turn to lifeguarding a little bit. I know you do a little bit of lifeguarding work here at the Jersey Shore. Um, And, you know, you said you're someone you've done a lot of work with Australia. Um, I'm kind of curious, like, could you compare lifeguarding here in the United States to Australia? Like, what are some best practices that we're doing? What are best practices that people in Australia are doing? Um, And have you been able to bring over some, you know, concepts from Australia to the U.S. and, and vice versa?
5: Well, I've been really lucky. I'm, I'm with the Upper Township Beach Patrol in Stratford, in South Jersey. I'm also with the Maloloba Surf Lifesaving Club in Australia. Um, I've worked with Surf Life Saving Australia and Surf Lifesaving Queensland on a, on a larger level on some programs. I've also spent some time in Poland working with their lifesaving community. So I've, I've been able to kind of absorb and look at how people protect the community and how people protect some very diverse shorelines with very varying resources. And I think that the main thing is lifeguards need to do a good job of educating the community, clearly indicating where there are dangers that people should be aware of. And then, hypothetically, the best case is intervening so that you know lifeguards don't need to get wet. But a preventative approach to guarding some of these areas will keep everyone safe. I mean, there are instances of lifeguards... Uh, being injured or or passing away tragically during rescues. Um, I've spent some time in Hawaii, and while we were filming Wave Safe, we actually had to uh, rescue a a patron that was visiting from Minnesota that got into trouble, and I helped one of the lifeguards uh, bring them in at Waikiki. But I think the best practice is clearly communicating to the community what the dangers are for that specific beach, Uh, being consistent with how you communicate, and I think one of the best practices that I really appreciate in Australia is they're a national organization that sets the standard for all the surf lifesaving clubs. So you have a very uniform process of communicating beach hazards, uniform behavior and operations across each surf lifesaving club. And I find that it's a little bit different in the U.S. because um, it's not as mandated across the entire country. So there are a lot of regional differences, which often falls to the beachgoer to recognize and look for what do I need to know and how is it communicated at this specific agency and at this location.
4: Yeah. And before we wrap up here, uh, I I just kind of want to go with your big takeaway. I mean, if you have that one message that you want to get out to people when you're talking about safety at the beach, what is is that big takeaway message?
5: You know, I spent a lot of time working on it for the WaveSafe series and knowing that Lifeguards are going to go off-duty after Labor Day. You're going to see a lot fewer of them on there. The takeaway, three things. Respect the ocean, and that is respecting the dynamic environment that may be stronger more powerful than what you've experienced in the past. It can change from day to day, from year to year. The coast you visited last year on your vacation may be different this year because of the way storms in the winter have reshaped the beach. Respect the ocean. It changes, it can be dynamic, and it can be dangerous at times. Stay situationally aware of the weather, of the water, of the people around you, of the people in your party that are there with you. Be aware of changing conditions so you can avoid dangerous situations. And finally, take 10, which is really kind of our call to action. Protect yourself first to save others. We want to prevent both primary drownings and too often when someone charges in to see someone in trouble and we end up with two victims. So those are the three things: respect the ocean, stay situationally aware, take ten to protect yourself and save others.
2: Awesome, very helpful stuff, Breckner. Um, as always, tremendous resource of what you're doing with NOAA and with other organizations, bringing forth um, you know safety and you know communication to the beachgoers who are going all across, not only the Jersey Shore but all across America uh, this summer here. So appreciate you coming on, Bruckner, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again.
6: Looking beyond the atmosphere, here's Tony Rice with your astronomy outlook. The Perseid meteor shower peaks this weekend, and it's one of the three most active meteor showers of the year. But this one has the benefit over December's Geminids or January's Quatrinids of peaking at a time where you don't have to bundle up to see them. Nearly every article on the Perseids mentions the number 100 when discussing how many meteors might be seen. and Some use the only slightly more accurate phrase, up to 100. The reality is, most of us won't see nearly that many. That century number comes from the Zenith Hourly Rate, or ZHR. This is a handicapping system of sorts, used to correlate reports of meteor activity from around the world. That Zenith part means it's being calculated on the radiant, or point in the sky where the meteors appear to be coming from, being directly overhead. Something that's only possible to happen at one latitude, and only for a brief time. ZHR also mathematically eliminates light pollution and clouds the real enemy of seeing the most meteors. All that being said though, the Perseids are definitely worth going out to see. And to see the most, look to the darkest part of the sky. Meteors can appear anywhere, not just around that radiant point. And those hours before sunrise, those are the best because the radiant point is in the highest point in the sky. And that hides the fewest meteors below the horizon. But above all, be patient. The longer you look, the more you'll see. You'll also be amazed how many more stars you'll see just after 15 minutes of letting your eyes adjust to the darkness. And on that, leave that phone inside. Each time you look to a light, the 15 minute timer starts over. That's your astronomy outlook. Follow me at RTP Hokey for more spacey stuff like this.
2: Thank you again, Bruckner, for hopping on the podcast. 54-degree ocean waters in Alaska. Not my cup of tea, but it's definitely Bruckner's, and I'm glad it is for him. But on a serious note, um, lots of good stuff in there. I mean, we say that every podcast, lots of good stuff. But I think what what Bruckner um, or what separates Bruckner here is that he actually goes out to these places and actually does talk about the weather hazards in those locations. He is an expert not just for, you know, the East Coast, but the West Coast, Gulf of Mexico. He's been to American Samoa many times. Um, so he really has all of the United States, you know, in terms of the shore and what hazards it can bring on lock and how to empower all of us as we go, you know, to the beach, to the bays uh, for the rest of the summer here.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I can't imagine swimming in 50-odd degree water. I mean, I would just lock up in a hurry. Once it gets below 70, I'm just not a very happy Happy dude. I've swam in some 60s, upper 60s. You know, when I've gone to the beach, I'm like, I'm stubborn. I'm just gonna wait in it. Maybe w- ride a couple of waves, and then that's done. Uh, but you know, you've got to acclimate to that stuff. Uh, the, the idea that that you could go, you know, hypothermia could set in at 74, 75 degree water. Uh, that's a little shocking to me, to be honest.
4: I think Bruckner is a, a candidate for most interesting man in the world. Right. <laughs> Honestly, he yes. has that, that bio you read for him, Joe, at the start. It's like, that raises that raises your eyebrows. Like, this guy has some stories to tell. And sure enough, oh, I mean, yeah. we just barely got into it with him. But I think, you know, you know, he's using that passion for all these things on the water that he's done to spread it. I mean, clearly there are going to be people that haven't done nearly as much as what he's done and maybe have no desire to. But for someone who's been in the water that long, I mean, you learn a lot about it. And the fact that he's, you know, now his main mission is spreading safety and awareness. I think there are a lot of good tips that he spread throughout there. And I really like, you know, when you go to the beach, he talks about how excited you get. And, you, you know, you're especially when you have kids with you. And so sometimes, you, you know, you're just focused like get in the water. But like, you know, I think that what he mentioned was that take 10, like just take a quick pause, look at your surroundings. You know, look, are there any signs of rip currents in front of you before you run into the water? So as much as the emotions can get the best of you when you're having a fun day at the beach, keeping in mind that safety and taking some pauses, taking some breaks, even just getting out of the water, to take a break and looking at the water before you get in. Like, that's real good advice.
2: Respect the ocean. Yes, respect the ocean. The ocean will respect you. All right. And we are going to wrap it up here for another episode of the Across the Sky podcast, but We have many more episodes lined up for you here next Monday. You're going to hear from Zeke father about warm ocean waters. You might have heard about that 101-degree ocean water temp off the coast of Florida in one of the bays. Uh, We're going to talk about the warm ocean waters we've seen. We have Douglas Casa coming on August 21st, talking about heat and football. By the time you listen to this, the NFL's Hall of Fame game will have already happened, kicking off the preseason. So that is coming up. And then on uh, Labor Day weekend, we're going to have Sally Warner uh, talking about warming the deep oceans from hurricanes. Uh, and that is very important as well. So we have a number of episodes lined up here. We always like to keep it timely with the time of year. So we're talking, you know, a lot about the ocean, a lot about hurricane season, and you know, a little bit of football too. Uh, and we'll have more fall topics as we get after the Labor Day holiday. But for meteorologist Sean Sublin and meteorologist Matt Hollander, I'm Joe Martucci.
1: Thanks for listening to the Across
2: the Sky Podcast.
1: At Strayer University, we've been empowering students to pursue their goals for over 130 years. From innovative degree programs and helpful tools to campus locations focused on creating community for international students, we can help you find your way forward. We even offer international students 25% off tuition on select degree programs. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Eligibility rules, restrictions, and exclusions apply. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by Chev and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.